Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... You know, we're now building a marketplace for all our customers to buy consumables that they use in the workplace. We want to give people one-click ordering from their phones so that they can get whatever they need within two hours if they're in a capital city, kind of like the Amazon for the workplace. Last week, we spoke to high school dropout Luke Anir about how he transformed his simple idea to help bring workplace health, safety and quality compliance up to world's best practice with his digital solution he called Safety Culture. Safety Culture's mobile app checklist for all kinds of workplaces and all kinds of employees has grown into a homegrown Aussie success story that was recently valued by investors at $2.2 billion, giving the company, let's call it unicorn squared status. Now, in part two of my chat with Luke Anir, he offers deep insights into the wisdom of global tech companies going for customer traction and not profitability in their early days. How he now aims to build a marketplace for customers, a kind of Amazon for the workplace as he describes it, and how initial panic at the onset of the COVID pandemic in 2020 quickly turned into a positive for safety culture. And he has some perhaps surprising thoughts about sudden immense wealth and what to do with it. I hope you enjoy the second part of Luke Anir. Luke Anir, great to talk to you. For part two, I'm going to get straight into it. In 2020, you hit the famed and prized unicorn status with a valuation (laughs) above $1 billion. How did that sort of happen and what did that mean to you? Honestly, it didn't mean much. Um, (laughs) Yeah, The unicorn title is what they give these companies that are worth a billion. It's not something I've ever worried about, to be honest. All I care about is is solving a big problem and and reaching more people every day. So didn't really take too much notice of it, but it keeps coming up in the media and people write about it. It's a sign of, you know, a certain type of success. It comes about because investors, you know, want to buy part of the company, either from other investors or from the company. And they set a valuation based on what they're prepared to pay. And if we accept it, that then becomes the new valuation of the company. And so it took us eight years to get to a billion and, and then took us pretty much five months to get to the next round at over two billion. So I mean it's unbelievable. I was going to say in May this year, 2021, as you say, probably five months later, you raised $99 million in a funding round, which gives safety culture evaluation back in May of $2.2 billion. Now that's boom time stuff, right? I mean it's unicorn squared. It is, but you know, I'm now trying to think about a deal that, that would put us at a $5 billion valuation. And so it just snowballs. And I think once you get to a certain point, you know, people often say the first million's the hardest. So I think the first thousand's the hardest than the next thousand, you know. But for us, you know, it's it's definitely got momentum now. You know, we've got a, a really great customer base. And so we can now bring more products to those customers and and leverage that. So yeah, I think our impact can go way beyond where it is. I want to two hundred X the business over the next 10 years. That's my my goal and make it 200 times bigger. So 
if we did that, they're silly numbers. It'd be a $400 billion company and everything that goes with it, but someone's going to do it. So why not be us? It's so interesting though. Would, I mean, I'm sure you would agree that valuations, particularly in the tech space, are completely freaky and maybe a bit ridiculous. You said it's one way, the unicorn status is one way of sort of gauging success. You also said, you know, you've only been profitable for 18 months. So, I mean, this is not profit. This is just what someone thinks your company is worth. Yeah, there's a couple of things. You got to look at the unit economics for starters. With software, as I said you know, in last week's episode, part one, you build it once and you sell it millions of times. So your profit margins are you know, north of 80%. That's different to a traditional business. If we're a trucking company, we've got you know, trucks driving up and down the highways in order to be able to make any money. Here, you just build it once and then you sell it millions of times. And so the unit economics are fundamentally different. And then the distribution model to take your product to a global customer base is zero cost. And so those fundamentals are what's different about software and tech. The ability for people to access your product, they just download it through the app store or they can start using it today in minutes. Like this is, you know, 30, 40 years ago, if you told people this is how the world's going to be, it would be unthinkable. And yet that's how, you know, these software companies are being built. And so the valuations are a reflection of the unit economics and they're a reflection of the distribution costs to take your products to market and, and this opportunity. It's the global massive opportunity. So you can get, you know, we would hope to have 100 million people using our product over the next seven to 10 years. Like these sort of numbers, if I was buying petrol stations and saying, I want 100 million customers every day, it's like probably not possible if I owned all the petrol stations in the world. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a different scale and, yeah. and the, the unit economics are different. So that's why these valuations have much higher multiples on revenue. But are you saying, sorry, that you don't think they're ridiculous? They're absolutely not ridiculous most of the time. They're absolutely not for that reason, because they are acquiring customers at a cheaper and faster rate than any other type of business. And once you have engaged users, even if they're free, your ability to monetize those is actually much easier than it is to get them in the first place. So, you know, a Facebook or a Twitter or any of these, if you want to monetize those customers like they have with ads, and personally, I don't think the ad model is, is one I like. I hate the ads. But anyway. Well, that's why I don't have ads on this podcast. Right. There it's you go. purely a service to listeners. <laughs> there you go. And so, you know, the ability to get people using your product is the hard part. Once you've got people using it each day, then monetizing it's not so hard. And so profitability, you can turn on and off with a switch. Like this is the thing as well. If you're running physical stores somewhere and you're, you're running them at a loss, then your ability to turn them into something profitable is quite difficult often. You've got a lot of variables in your overheads. With software, you can have hundreds of millions of people or thousands of people using your product and you can turn on profitability in a day. You can drop you know, ads in, you can start charging for a new feature, whatever you want to do. And so profitability is not the goal early on. It's about market share. It's getting, getting the engaged users. And so it actually isn't smart for us. And that's why you take investment because the goal is not to be profitable early on. The goal is to get as many people as you can using your product and coming back to it every day day. And so we don't think about profitability as a goal. I think it's nice to get to a point where you're not burning cash. And we've done that. I did that pre-COVID, 12 months before COVID. I just wanted to clean things up a bit. I felt we were just getting a little bit too complacent. And so I brought that sort of discipline back in. 
And within months, you know, business was profitable. We went from burning two million a month to plus half a million a month. And so now I can play with that dial and say, well, we've got a hundred and you know something million in the bank today. And you know, we don't want to be making money every month if we can go out there and acquire a lot more customers. And so that's the thinking, the rationale behind it. Yeah. No, look, it's such an interesting view too. Are you able to say how much you still own of the company? I'm still the, the major shareholder. I don't think we've we've published the actual percentage, but I'm still still the largest shareholder out of out of all the investors. And you know, I think we'll, we'll keep it that way for the foreseeable. I want to ask you about the COVID outbreak. Were you initially anyway completely panicked and worried when COVID hit in March 2020? Absolutely. I did not know what was going to happen. I thought the whole world is about to stop. You know, none of us did. And we were actually doing a funding round in the lead up to COVID. And then as the world was actually locking down, you know, Australia was starting to go into lockdown. I was trying to get signatures from investors and they didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, Malcolm Turnbull and Lucy Turnbull were people who were coming in at that point as investors. And I remember, you know, I think they signed the documents at 10 o'clock on a Friday night at their house and we got it done over that weekend. But yeah, I, I was scrambling. I was like, shit, I don't know, you know, what's going to happen here. What did happen in those first few weeks? Did it have an impact on sales? Did you have to let people go? How did it actually impact you, say, in March or March and April of 2020? Fortunately, we haven't let any staff go since COVID started. We've, we've actually hired, you know, probably 150 people since then. So Fantastic. That's brilliant. Yeah, we've created lots of jobs. But early on, we probably saw 40% of our users stop using our platform, just stop dead. That only lasted for probably three weeks. And then they started coming back in some industries, but completely died in others. So cruise ships, for example, who used our products to manage quality and safety across them. Absolutely zero. Airlines got you know completely smashed, and we have mostly airlines around the world use us. Hotels use us all the time. Sofitel, Pullmans, all the Accor hotels, things like that. So you know, public transport, all this stuff went to almost zero. But then on the other hand, fulfillment centers, you know, Amazon fulfillment centers and things like that around the world, they went through the roof with usage. And so, and are they your customers too? That's right. They are. Yeah, absolutely. And so. We saw customers like that, you know, Kmart, for example, would do 300 inspections a month normally pre-COVID. Once COVID came, they were doing 17,000 a month checking everything because people just knew that they, they, they had to make sure they're doing the right thing. And so COVID taught us how important our products were to our customers. It was a net positive for us in terms of more people are aware of the importance of safety and quality than ever now. And we've continued to innovate through that. And probably, I mean, it, you know, managing through the pandemic, a lot more businesses maybe more white collar businesses that don't have manufacturing production lines and that sort of thing need a lot of help to get their employees back working safely. That's right. Yeah. You know, the risks now are everywhere for people. And, you know, we now provide sanitization stations as well to customers. We, we get those manufactured. We manufacture face masks now. People wear safety culture masks around. So, yeah, it's, it's been, been amazing. Luke, how do you think your leadership skills have grown or changed in this last, well, really only five, six, seven years? Yeah. A, a, You're a laughing. <laughs> wow. It's just, I call it, my job feels like perpetual incompetence. <laughs> That's very unfair on yourself, I reckon. 
Well, I just feel like I'm forever in over my head and making it up as I go. But the nature of scaling a business is I'm constantly putting myself out of a job because as soon as I solve a problem, I then have to hire someone who's a specialist in that area, can do that way better than me. And then I go on to the next problem that no one yet has figured out how to solve. And so I'm forever doing the job I don't know how to do. And I never get the satisfaction of feeling like I've actually mastered something. I can remember, you know, when I was working in the petrol station, I, I had it on a string, you know, I could, I could give customers a great service every time and balance the tills down to the cent and all that sort of stuff. And I never get that satisfaction anymore. Every day there's a new problem. And that's just, just part of it. But I get the, I get the longer term fulfillment and the purpose in my work, knowing that we're doing something that makes the world better, that improves people's lives and helps them do their best work every day. And so that's the satisfaction. I guess it's a more mature way to look at it, but uh, it certainly doesn't feel great a lot of the time. Well, you're obviously the problem solver as CEO and, you know, well, founder certainly and driver of the business, but as CEO, you do have to lead and solve problems at the same time. What will your role be, do you think, in the next five years? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I would hope that I can still you know, strategically drive the, the big opportunities and the big bets that we can place as we get more resources behind us. You know, As I was saying about how my thinking is changing as we grow, I now start thinking about, well, you know, what could we do if we went and maybe acquired another business for a billion dollars or more? I couldn't have thought like that two years ago. And so I think that will continue to evolve. I'll keep thinking bigger about how we solve this problem and create this operations platform for all these teams around the world. The way I think about building the business is that I want world-class CEOs to run different business units within the one, one big company, the umbrella. And so you know, we're now building a marketplace for all our customers to buy consumables that they use in the workplace, from work boots to um, aprons if they're a chef or whatever. We want to give people one-click ordering from their phone so that they can get whatever they need within two hours if they're in a capital city, kind of like the Amazon for the workplace. And so, you know, I want a world-class CEO in their own right to build that global business. And as we are with insurance, we've, you know, just recently hired a former CEO of an insurance company that we'll announce in a couple of months, and they're going to rerun our global insurance business. So, my job is to really support and empower world-class leaders to go and build incredible businesses within the safety culture umbrella. And, and that's how I think about my role today. Luke, does wealth have an impact on you? And, and how do you think about the wealth that you've made for yourself and for your workers? But this individual idea of very fast wealth kind of raining down on you. Yeah, look, it's a, I think it's a good question. And it's something that I have tried to be conscious of, you know, to stay humble and, and have a sense of humility and just a grounded approach to life is something that I value. And, and gratitude and humility, I think, are, are way undervalued and not, and not talked about enough. And so, you know, I think money is just an exchange of value. You give people value and they can give you money back if, if that's the deal. And so, you know, if you give value to millions of people, then you're probably going to get a disproportionate reward for that. But I just think that there's two things, I guess. One is I want to be able to have experiences with friends and family that are positive and, and not have stress of we don't have enough money. So I guess that's part of it while I'm alive. The other part is I want to then give all of that away. And so, you know, it probably my personal wealth is probably in the billions by the time we're done. 
And I wouldn't want to burden any of my children or anyone with that sort of money. I think it's, you know, it's a mindset that you have to develop over years to grow it. I think you just give it to someone and it can actually be a burden. So I'll probably spend the next 10 years or so thinking about how do we give that away with a real sense of purpose and have that go on to, you know, impact the lives of others in a really positive way. So don't get me wrong, we have some fun along the way, but uh, I've never drawn big salaries and things like that. Today, I can tell you the salary today is 290 grand, which is more than probably what most people earn, but it's not not massive. And up until a couple of years ago, it was like 150 grand. And, and then for a long time, it was 75 grand. So wow. I've never, uh, you know, I've always lived pretty simple, but I had Lee Fixel from Tiger in New York. When he invested in 2018, I'd never taken any money out of the company other than my wage. And he said to me, you need to take a little bit out. And I said, okay, well, maybe I'll take $2 million out to pay my mortgage off. Oh, that's just extraordinary. Yeah, this is 2018. And so, you know, I don't know what the company was worth then, like $400 million or something. And so, you know, I said, maybe I'll take $2 million. And he said, no, 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 you need to take a little bit more than that. And I'll explain to you why. The decisions that you've made to build the business up to this point are not as difficult as the decisions you'll face going forward. They'll get bigger. And if all of your personal wealth, net worth, and your house, whatever, is tied to those decisions, you will make emotionally charged decisions and poorer decisions that aren't necessarily in the best interest of the company. So you need to take five or $10 million out to pay off your mortgage, to have a home that you never have to worry about, and then get on with running the business. And you know what? He got me. I was like, shit, I, I, I think this guy's right. And so I thought about it for a few days and then I did. And then I was able to, to pay off my house and stuff. And so that's probably been the most rewarding part, actually, is seeing the team members, everyone in the company has equity. And now that's worth millions of dollars for many people. And so to see them being able to, you know, experience that sort of financial freedom as well, where they're not stressed about those things, that's been wonderful. You know, I've got photos of staff members hugging their kids and saying, we've paid off our home, it's ours now. You know, that's as a result of what we've all built together. It's pretty special. And the funding rounds that you hear about in the press, a lot of it is, you know, some of those early employees selling some of their stock. It's not all just coming into the company. So it's a mix. There's there's a big secondary market these days. There's a lot of money in the private markets. And I can sort of, I guess, fend off the pressure to IPO if I keep giving early investors and early employees the chance to sell some of their shares without having to, you know, us going listed and then we're going to run a public company. So I'll try and keep it private as long as I can and we'll keep rewarding those that have put all the hard work in and the faith into to building it. So no IPO on the horizon, that's for sure. That's right. Like, you know, it's just one option of many that we may take at some point, but it's certainly not my preference today to go and, go and list. A couple of really quick questions and needed only quick answers. What's the toughest thing you think you faced in your journey so far? Just growing personally at the rate of the opportunity. I have to constantly tackle problems I don't know how to tackle. And then, you know, helping other people do the same. Like when I've put people in roles that's too big for them and they fail at it, I feel really bad about it. It's stressful. So that's been really hard. And it's got easier over time, I guess. I, I used to think my job as a manager was to make people happy. If people went home happy every day, I thought I'd done a good job. When that's not what I believe anymore. I believe my role is to give people the opportunity to be able to do their best work every day and to challenge them and to help them grow and support them. But some days they're going to go home not happy. Some days they won't enjoy it. And, and that's okay. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. But once I realized that, it got easier. So what's the biggest lesson you've learned in your journey as an entrepreneur? Probably focus. Focus is the most important thing, where you focus your energy and your time. Focus on the things that are important and going to have maximum impact. 
not all the urgent stuff that gets thrown at you every day. That's probably the most important thing. And getting traction with your product. Like you need to get people using your product as quickly as possible and ideally as early as possible. A lot of people, you know, focus on trying to raise money and do all these things. Just just get traction, just get people using it. And then everything else will get easier because it validates your idea that this is something that people value. And once you get that, then um, then you can unlock the keys to all the other doors. What are you obsessed about at the moment, be it a cause, a book, a person? That's interesting. Uh, look, I think I'm looking at, at you know, people like Bezos as the, and he transitioned now out of the CEO role. I look at what Musk is doing and think about what Steve Jobs did and what he's left behind. And I, I guess I just want to understand that transition really well over the next sort of five or 10 years and just learn what works and what doesn't in that space as, as you, you know, continue to empower more people to, to take on parts of the business. So that's probably where I spend a fair bit of my time is, is trying to understand that. But yeah, I don't know. That and exercising, make sure I exercise regularly. Luke, what would you say to people, young people perhaps, who want to pursue an idea, follow a dream? Just start. The first step is the hardest, but just start. So many people talk about it or they say, I don't know where to start. It's like none of us did. Like just do what you think is the next best thing to do. Try that and go from there. And there's only two steps that really matter, the first and the last, you know, where you start and where you finish. The rest of it's just the journey along the way. So most of us don't really have to worry about losing our whole lives anymore. Like maybe our grandparents could barely feed themselves if their business failed. Today, you can figure it out. There's a way and you can go out the door with a shirt on your back and figure out or find a way to, to build a business. So just start, start, take the first step and then figure out the next one from there. Luke Anir, the founder of Safety Culture. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thanks, Alan. It's been really nice to chat to you. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.